reading today, so we are going to read from a couple passages in Genesis, first book of the Bible, um, so it should be pretty easy to find. The passages this morning are Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, and then after a couple of verses, we will hop over to chapter 2, and I'll outline those as we go. Um, page 2, if you're looking for it. All right, Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then hop over to chapter two, verses seven through nine. After that, we'll go down to verse 15. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Hop down to verse 15, we'll finish out the chapter. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of, Eden, of Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, so he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Thanks, Becca. Oh, thank you. I'm not used to this. Thank you. 
Um, a couple, a couple more quick announcements now that we've had a good transition. Um, if you want to give to the ministry that's in Ukraine right now, you can either see the gentleman who was just up here, or his wife Patricia, who is right here, who's going to stand up, and they have something to give you to um, to do that if that if that's on your heart to do. Secondly, some of you know my son Jude is in the hospital right now. He had a surgery on his leg that was. Um, that was expected. He's going to have another one in July on his back. And here's what I need to tell you about that. Um, it's okay if I have to tell 270 people how he's doing. It's not okay for him to have to do that. It's important to remember that pastor's kids are not public figures. I am a public figure. My children are not. Does that make sense? Don't act like you know them. Don't tell them what to wear. And don't go ask them how their surgery was just because you got to pray for it because they have to do that to like everybody. Like, I, I had to—I got my son from a youth thing, and it was just like a small group event at a house, and everybody had asked him. Okay, so please don't talk to Jude about his surgery, okay? You can ask me, even though it's like you'll be the 740th person. You can ask me, but, um, but I do really appreciate your prayers for him and for us. Okay, I just don't want my son to hate coming to church. You know, you know what I'm saying? Okay. Um, this sermon is going to be—you're um, you're, going to hear it twice. Um, partly because then I don't have to write two sermons, but also because um, there's a lot, and I don't want to rush, and I think it's important that we cover this because of reasons I'm about to say. Um, James K. Smith writes on worship. He's a philosopher, and he said in one of his more recent books, he said, um, one of the things I find out when when I talk to people is when they think about themselves as human, they talk about themselves like they're basically a brain on a stick. Um, we have, um, in many ways, lost a sense of what it means to be a human person. One way you can think of it in terms of our intellectual history is um, in, somewhere between the 1960s and the 1940s, we kind of lost track of what it meant that God was real and sovereign. And in losing track of that through numerous modernist philosophies, it led to two horrific world wars And the point that many human beings got from that was not that we had forgotten the sovereignty of God and basic human virtue and neighborliness, but that God probably wasn't there, so we should just move on with our lives, which was the wrong lesson to get from it. And then somewhere between the 1950s and the 1990s, we lost our grip on the reality of sin, that human beings were inherently sinful creatures, that we were moral, we had the capacity for choice, we had provident control over our emotions, and yet we chose not to. We were infected by this brokenness called the fall, and we were prone to sin, or what the Bible calls the flesh, and we wanted to redefine that to say that humans were either morally neutral or really morally good. And this idea that human beings are basically good is basically ubiquitous. Everybody believes it, and it is on one level true. Human beings are basically good in their creation. A human being is a good but human beings are not good. And that distinction is incredibly important, right? But it got worse. I remember when I was in seminary, my seminary professor saying, you know, one of the hardest things to get across if you go preach the gospel like at a university, let's say, is to get across the concept of sin. They can't even ask any good questions about the Bible anymore because no one's ever read it. But so this idea that like we need to be redeemed, forgiven, set right with God again because of our sin is really hard to get across. So 25 years later, that's really not even true anymore. Now we can't even conceive of—we're struggling with the idea of whether or not human beings can even be talked about as good or evil because we don't even know if we have free choice. We don't even know if we're more than a brain on a stick. We don't even know if our conscience is just sort of like a phantasm that we think we think we think, but we don't really think. 
And we can say sentences that would have been utterly unintelligible to former generations. Which you think I'm probably going to say something like that a human woman can say I'm a man, which would have been unintelligible to future generations. But it's way worse than that. The idea that I can have sex with my spouse throughout my life and that has nothing to do with procreation is just as much a sentence that doesn't make any sense. But that's not one that's controversial. Even to people who consider themselves biblically believing, historically orthodox Christians. And yet our loss of our understanding of what it means to be, to be an embodied person made in the image of God is something we have no idea how fundamentally we have lost it. And listen, if you don't know what you are, it, that's even worse than not knowing who you are. Because if you don't know what you are, you have no chance at figuring out who you are. Right. Now, I want to talk about two things this morning relative to our humanity. The first is what we are created as. That is, what it means to be in the image of God. That has nothing to do with what you do. Right? Every human being is created. That is, God did an action that was gracious. It has nothing to do with your works or even your consent. God has made you, and you are made in God's image. Which means you don't have to maintain it. It's already there, and so you don't have to get your dignity. Okay? Your dignity as a human being is intrinsic. It is in you, in creation. No one can take it from you. They can deny it. They can offend it. They can engage tyrannically to destroy it, like we've talked about earlier. But they cannot make it not exist. Right? What it also means is, is that you can't deny it and the responsibility that it brings into your life and the purpose that it defines for you about you. You are in your being in the likeness of God and that means you represent God's presence in the earth, whether you want to or not, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, right? And then as a, a creature that is in our being made in God's image, what we're called to do, the purpose of our life and existence is to bear it, to act like it, to believe it, understand what it means, and then behave as though out of that belief, we know what it means. So what it means in as it's defined in the earliest chapters of Scripture, then worked out as Scripture goes, is, is that we are to bring God's dominion into creation as embodied persons. What it means to be in the image of God is to bring God's dominion into creation as embodied persons. Both of those phrases are super important. God's dominion and embodied persons in the relationship between them. Now, what I'm going to do today and next week is I want to talk about these four things. What is the image of God? How do you do the image of God? So what does it mean to be in the image of God? Then what, is, what does it mean to bear the image of God? And then how do we actually pursue it? What does it look like? Because it sounds really complicated. It will by the time I'm done. And then fourth, can it really even happen? Or is this just pie in the sky, like religious stuff that like has nothing to do with our real lives as human beings, right? So first, one of the things that um, Devin started talking about last week was what it means to be in the image of God. Okay, so here's how I'll define that. To be in the image of, God, image of God means to be made in God's image is to embody his likeness in creation. That's what it means. God creates human beings in his creation as the end of his creation, right? In his image and likeness. And what, what Devin talked about last week is kind of like an imperial statue, right? The, the king makes a statue of himself, and it brings his presence, his authority, 
into a place so that his presence is there, right? And to bear God's image in creation is to embody his likeness, to put his likeness into a body and to be able to bear it into a place that is in creation, right? Now, um, it's important to recognize that this means that our being is an involuntary gift, okay? It is a gift that you didn't choose and you can't refuse. You know how like you can—if somebody brings a package and they need you to sign for it, you can refuse delivery and then they just take it back. You can't do that with your humanity. Okay, you can't do it. You, you, can't, you can't not sign for it. You are made in the image of God. That means that you did not ask for it. You can't dismiss it. And if you can't see for some reason that it's an unspeakably great gift, it doesn't matter. You can't get rid of it. And you also can't say, well, I don't want—listen, Nick, I don't want my life to mean that much. <laughs> like, I get the whole idea that, like, I'm in God's image. That could lead to eternal life. That sounds great. But apparently it can also lead to eternal damnation, which is not great. And frankly, I just don't want my life to mean that much. That every minute of every day, in every way, in every kind of situation, I am imaging God. That's what I am. I can't not do it. I'm always doing it. I don't want to be that. And the answer is, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry, but you are that thing. You are in the image of God. It's part of your being, and it's the most important part of your being. And that's, and that's not just religiously truly true. That doesn't become true when you believe in Jesus. Right? The Bible doesn't start with Abraham, the first man of the promise. It starts with Adam, the first human. What God says about Adam and Eve and humanity is true for all human beings of every creed, every race, every time, every place, every gender, every era. There is no human being for which this is not true, whether they believe it or not, whether they love it or not, whether they hate it or not. It is the truth that is true about all of us and that we are all accountable to. Right? Now, Devin covered one of the four ways in the Bible in which God's image and likeness is spoken of. And they're all pretty closely related. But I want you to have all four in your mind as you work through the Bible because um, one of them becomes the big one as you work through Scripture. But all three are important. So one is the idol, right? In Deuteronomy, for example, God says to people, He says, listen, you are not to make any kind of image or likeness of me. Because if you do, it will corrupt you. It will always corrupt you. And the reason for that was, is there was already an idol. There was already a physical, spatial, embodied picture of God that demonstrated his local presence in the earth already, and it was us. And that's what we had to realize. That's what we had to accept. That's what we had to believe. And the minute we make another thing to worship— we're actually breaking the dynamic of how God has put his presence in his creation. You know, it's funny, like, uh, especially to the effect we're affected by a certain kind of belief in the Holy Spirit. Christians are often enamored with the idea of God's presence, that God would be more present with us. Sometimes we forget that we, we are, in our created being, the presence of God in his creation. Like, you're sitting here like, where is God? And the, the answer is literally, to creation, God has said— you are. Do you understand? You've never existed on planet Earth outside of the presence of God. I mean, think of how strange it is, a thing for us as Christians, to walk around thinking, when is God going to be present? When is God going to be present? When is God going to be present? Do you see how ironic that is? When God made you to bear his 
fundamental characteristics and essence in creation as his image bearer to be his likeness. That is his embodied presence. He is present everywhere you are present. You are his embodied presence. The thing that hurts us so much is how disconnected we are from the one who we're trying to present. And that pain is real. And it's relevant because of what you already are, right? This is also true of the likeness, like, like um, Devin spoke about in the book of Daniel, is perhaps one of the best examples of this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are governors. They're, 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 um, they're governmental agents uh, at a high level in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar makes this huge statue, and he tells everybody to worship it, and they're like, we're not going to worship it. And he gets— He's like, he's like, well, listen, maybe you didn't understand what I said. I said you were to worship it. And they said, listen, king, and this is very interesting relative to our view of government. They, he, they said, we actually don't have to defend ourselves to you about this. Which is, which is a particular kind of view of government, right? We don't have to defend ourselves to you. And we're not going to worship it. And then he doesn't go, well, it's just a stupid statue. It doesn't mean anything. Right? That's not, that's not what Nebuchadnezzar says. What he says is, Light the fire seven times hotter than it's ever been and throw these— bad word is how I would retell the story— into it. <laughs> right? And they get thrown into it because they won't worship the likeness. Right? Because the likeness stands for his imperial power. And they get thrown into the furnace, and they're burning up in there, except that they're not. And then what does the story say? There's another one in the fire who looks like that is in the likeness of or the image of man— in the fire with them. There is a greater image, a greater statue than the 90-foot golden one. He's in the fire. He's with the other image bearers, and so the fire can't burn them up because he is greater than them. He is the presence of the great unseen God in the fire, embodied to show himself. Because the idol that they didn't worship, they didn't worship because there was a greater presence, right? The same is true in the Gospels where Jesus is asked if he should pay taxes, right? And he says, bring me the coin. Whose image is on it? Whose likeness? Whose inscription? Right? And they say, well, Caesar's. And then he says, well, then give it to him because it's his. Right? Because if Caesar's inscription is on it, then it belongs to him. So give it to him. And then give to God the thing that his image and inscription is on. And they says they were amazed at him. What does he mean? Who cares about the coin? If Caesar's inscription's on it, it means it's his, right? So we have to pay taxes. So give him the tax. But what is the logical implication if we're not going to be hypocrites? That whatever God's inscription and image is on belongs to him, and he determines where it goes, what it does, how it functions, who, to whom it's owned. And that's you! And he says, so if you're willing to give to Caesar what's Caesar's, how can you not be willing to give to God what is God's? If you'll give him his own image, why won't you give back to God his own image? Because you must, right? And then lastly, just a couple pages further in Genesis, in chapter 5, it says that Adam had a son in his own image and in his own likeness, and he named him Seth. Right? The offspring of Adam and Eve is this son and so if you look at this, right, the idol was meant in pagan cultures to be like a symbol of God's presence, right? The statue of the king's dominion, the money of official ownership and its officialness, and the son or the daughter of the real character and personhood of the parents, 
What they're really like as persons, right? And all of these are built into this idea of the image, bearing the image, being in the image and likeness of God. All these things are true. And as you move through the Bible, especially as you get into the New Testament, one of these four overwhelms the other, right? And that's the image of the Son, the perfect image of the Father, the one who became flesh and dwelt among us, who was full of grace and truth, showing to us the image of God perfectly, right? Because we are, and then we are, what do we, what does it say? He did, and he made it possible, this one who came in the flesh, made it possible for us all, men and women everywhere, to become the children of God. Right? We were, in some sense, we were already children of God in creation, right? People say all the time, well, we're all, aren't we all the children of God? And by means of creation, relative to the Genesis 5 sonship, yes. But not in the sense that we actually resemble the Father in our personhood and character. Since Genesis 3, that got broken. So how do we then become image bearers who actually image the one who makes us. You see, that's the real problem in all of creation. That all of the Bible, the entire story of the Bible, is, is that God made creatures to image him, and instead they have been doing the opposite since Genesis 3. And he is going to reverse it. He will have the human beings be, in reality, what he originally created them to be. And what that means, sorry, is that one, we represent God in creation. There's nothing you can do about that. And two, what it also means is that we have the essential characteristics to do so. Now, I'm going to go into those a little bit more in another sermon. And Michael Matheson Miller, when he preaches in two weeks, his whole talk, his sermon will be on what are those characteristics? What is it that's intrinsic to us as human beings that makes us in the image of God? How are we different from horses? And, and what of those differences actually are part of what it means to image God? And it's not our physical bodies, right? Now, so if, if we are in God's image, then what does it mean to do God's image? What does it mean to bear it? What would it look like if we did the things God wanted us to do? Does it, would it just be like we were good? And the answer is, the way Scripture teaches us is by telling us the story, right? When you're born, you get parents, not a book, because human beings are intrinsically better at imitating than learning concepts, right? And so God is, is like telling us a story so that we take it in like a story. We learn it both by reading it and having the story in our mind, but also like connecting with it personally and imitating it and realizing how we're supposed to live out the story ourselves, right? And so in the story, what we see is there's a way in which God says to them in, in multiple ways, they are the image of the invisible God and they are embodied persons. So he makes them and he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every other living creature that moves on the ground, right? So God creates them in his image but then he recognizes immediately that they're limited as embodied persons. They can't be everywhere like he is. Does that make sense? And so when you—but <clears throat> when you look at the story, you see these limited embodied persons still acting with the same kind of character, still doing the same sorts of things that God does. So God creates, right? And in Genesis 1, there's at least—there's a couple verbs, but there's two main ones that are used. One is bara in Hebrew, which is just create out of nothing. It's only used of God. God used, does it three times in Genesis 1. Create the heavens and the earth, to create living things, and to create human beings. He just makes them, right? But then there's this other verb, asad, which is like fashion, garden, 
engaged in craftsmanship, where God is making the earth, right? Why, does, why is that verb used, right? It's, it's because that's what Adam's going to do, right? God is going to turn Adam loose to work the garden. Because work is what theologians call a pre-fall ordinance. That is, it was part of human existence before things went bad. We don't work because of the curse. Our work is toil because of the curse. But we were always meant to do productive and beautiful things. We were meant to be creators, creative workers, right? God speaks the world into existence. One of the first things Adam does in taking dominion is what? God brings all the animals to him. What does he do? He speaks a name to them. He takes the authority to name all the creatures over which God has just given him dominion. God makes him name them, right? Same thing, God's present everywhere in the world. And the first command is the command of fertility, to make more humans so that these limited embodied Israelites could be everywhere in the world. And then God has a rhythm in creation, six days and a day of rest. And people, Christians have argued for a long time over the significance of that relative to the actual time periods of natural history. Moses is probably not particularly concerned about natural history. He's mostly concerned about how God creates in the same rhythm of work he would give humanity to live with forever. That is, six days of work and one day of rest. That our productivity flows out of us for six days, but because we're embodied, because there are limits to us, we have to rest. Because God wants the whole world to know that his presence with us is not the presence of a slave driver. And so, but as embodied persons, there are lots of ways we aren't like God. Theologians have split these into what they call the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes. The incommunicable ones are the ones he cannot communicate to us or through us. God can't communicate his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness through us because we're not all-powerful. His omnipresence, that he's everywhere present. We are not everywhere present. He can't, or his omniscience, that he knows all things. None of us know all things. Right? There are certain things about God that are not communicated to creation through us. God is not present in that way to creation through us. But the ways of his character, his essential being as a person, he can. Things like his creativity, his justice, his goodness. Qualitatively, we do them at a much lower level of quality. But they have the same integrity. We can be creative like God. We can be just like God. We can be good like God. Now, this is where we're going to park for most of the next sermon and most of the rest of this one, which is, what does it actually mean in Scripture to take God's dominion into the world? Is it just to be good people? And it's not just to be good people. And what happens is, is that we learn a little bit of it through Genesis 2 and into Genesis 3, but then in Genesis 3, what happens is the fall, right? The serpent comes to Eve. She eats the fruit. Her husband goes along with Adam, and things start to come apart. The curse enters in. Work becomes toil. Childbearing becomes painful. And the curse begins to work itself out in creation in lots of different ways. And what happens is there becomes a human, self-centered, God-denying alternative to everything that we're called to do in the image of God. Human beings begin to make a, a new religion, a new idolatry of themselves and things that they think will save them. And we become increasingly forgetful of God. We see ourselves as autonomous and not under God's authority so as to show God as our presence in the, in the earth. And so what happens is, is there becomes this tension between those who believe and trust him and be under his authority and understand what they're made for and those who refuse to, right? And that difference is one of choice and belief, which God calls throughout the Bible faith. That's why faith saves. So, 
For example, here, here eight. This is not a complete list. I intend this to be somewhat dizzying because I want you to get the sense as we get through it that they're like, oh my gosh, the image of God is a very complex interrelated thing. One is work versus plunder, right? I've already said a little bit about how God intended us for work. But after the fall, what begins to happen immediately is people start taking what isn't theirs. Lamech takes multiple wives. Cain kills Abel because he doesn't like how Abel's being productive in a way that pleases God more. And he's angry at God about it. And so he kills Abel for it because of the resentment that comes from the fact that he's not getting enough and he's not respected for his things. And so on and on it goes, right? And what happens is the introduction of slavery, right? People taking the productivity of others rather than being divinely productive themselves, right? And the denial of this has spread all through the world. I mean, think about this. I'm sorry, this is going to sound political to some of you. The United States recently just crossed being 30 trillion dollars in debt. Now, what does that mean? Nobody knows. It's too big a number to matter. It's like murdering a million people. It's just a statistic. But you know what that means? Then instead of being so productive that we have produced enough for ourselves, enough, Scripture says, to share with others, and enough to bless our children, what we are instead doing is denying both work and fertility by choosing not to have children, using up everything we produce and more, and then putting other people's children in debt to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars so that we can have the stuff we want. And we just call that deficit spending. Right? It's like calling the dismemberment of children abortion. Doesn't that sound nice? It's horrific. We're stealing from other people's children for generations because we want nicer stuff. We don't want to pay for what we use. That's what we're saying. We want all these services, all these things, all these like fake jobs that we just create that don't do very much and that aren't productive because we just don't want to face the fact that we're not that productive, but we want to be rich. And so we'll pay people in other countries $5 an hour to make us smartphones, and we'll spend more money than we even have for generations, and we don't see a problem with that. It's because we've forgotten what we are. Right? I should move on. So fertility, <laughs> right? The first command of human beings is be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful there isn't a reference to work. It's a reference to having children. Okay? The idea here is, is that God is going to create a woman for the man, and they are going to come into this comprehensive union of marriage, and the institution that he creates to produce what Malachi later would call godly offspring. That is not just offspring, but offspring nurtured within the family of husband and wife, such that you have the best shot, at least, of producing people that know what it means to bear the image. That is offspring in the image of God, who are godly, like God. That is, they, they have it in their being, but they've also learned how to bear it. And he's like, that's what I'm after, right? And fundamental then to human experience is entering into this recognition that fertility is something we were created for. Now, some of you are going to be like, Nick, you're hurting my feelings because— Now listen, if your feelings are hurt because you want to have children or more children and you can't, that actually shows that you do recognize this. Right? The, the feeling of pain at infertility is the recognition that both naturally and divinely you were made to embrace new life. And you haven't had the opportunity yet, or you have had something physically stand in the way. Right? But the idea that 
fundamental is for us to be fruitful in creating more human beings that can be God's godly offspring is fundamental to who we are. Right? And there's one place where the Apostle Paul says, you don't have many fathers. Right? There, there's this sense in which when God reunites humanity in the new family of the church, we have access to our own mothers and fathers, but laid on top of the primary institution of family, God lays another institution of family called the church. So that through the church, young men and women who are born into our family of the gospel can have many mothers and fathers. So that those of us who have either neither the opportunity or the capacity physically under the curse to have children can be mothers and fathers to younger men and women growing up in our midst. God puts those who do not have such offspring into families that do so that we can raise for God together godly offspring. So that the presence of God can be everywhere in the world. The capacity of human beings from ancient times until now to separate sex from fertility is something that is as unnatural as any other belief that you think is strange. The Roman Catholic Church, in their attempt to hold these together, banned all birth control completely. <laughs> but the, the concept of having a fundamental relationship of hospitality towards the receiving of new life is fundamental to the human being bearing the image of God when we can. And you and I live in a culture that really wants, really wants to believe that these two things do not have to be related at all. It's fine to sit there and be like, I think maybe Roman Catholics got it wrong where they were like, they have to be related entirely. Like, every time you have sex, you have to have a baby. Which is not what they believe, but that's what people think they believe because of Monty Python. But like, <laughs> that does not mean that the opposite is true. That, that sex and fertility have no relationship to each other. All of your sexual desires are rooted in your fertility. The intercourse between a man and a woman is designed to produce offspring. Why do women want to have sex three days out of the month? It's because that's when they're fertile. Guys, we're fertile all the time. But the three days they're fertile, I, I always tell young guys, listen, if you're trying to not have kids in the first few years of your marriage, when you're, the, the day your wife comes on to you, you need to know that's because her body is trying to have a baby. You understand? Because it's, th these things are meant to work together. We, we want to give ourselves to all the urges of fertility and have intercourse and yet have none of the results of fertility in creating humans. And so th the, the world is looking at a populational collapse with birth rates under replacement in every place people have any money. Because we've never really wanted to have children. Even in the ancient world, they sacrificed them to gods, used abortive potions that oftentimes ruined women's health, and did whatever they could to keep from having children. Unless they thought they would be boys, i.e. good workers on the farm, profit creators. Since the fall, we've never been particularly hospitable to how we are used up in work and service towards the creation of a new generation of people who would be God's godly offspring. Only through that procreative mandate can we really be expansionist rather than filled with consolidation, right? The idea in, right, do, 
like, what's the point of the story of the Tower of Babel? Right? God says to have offspring. Why? So that you can do what to the earth? So that you can fill it. Is, is he like, here's what I want. Create, create a populational crisis. Make sure there's a shortage of natural resources. Is that what God's saying? It's not. It's not. What he's saying is, I want my image bearers who carry my presence to be everywhere in my creation to bring dominion there. That's positive and good. That's what I want. And so we're going to need a lot of people for that. But what actually happens in the Bible is after the flood, there's this reconstitution of humanity, and they are living out the image of God. That is, they realize they can do amazing things together. And so they say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to build a tower all the way to the heavens. And God doesn't say, you know what? There's no way they can do that. No, he says, listen, anything they put their mind to, together, if they work together, bearing the image, anything they try to do, they will accomplish. They'll do it. Human beings have that much capacity. So what does he do? He confuses their language. And what's the result of that? They spread out into the earth. God forces them to do, through the confusing of language, what he had called them to do willingly, originally. Because we're meant to spread out. We're meant to have children. They're meant to leave. We're meant to go into all these different places of the world and bring God's dominion. And so, even in a well-populated world, all the other people in all the other countries of the world all matter. They're all bringing God's dominion to India and Eurasia and Africa and South America and the oceans and everywhere. And so all those people matter as much as us. And whether or not they live in peace and safety in those places. Whether or not our country profits from their unstable governments, or whether or not we do what's right to try to make sure that their countries can do what's right. That all matters because God wants his dominion to rule beautifully in Russia, and in China, and in sub-Saharan Africa, and in Belize, and here. Let's do one more. Well, actually, those go together kind of nicely. Let's do righteousness versus wickedness, number seven. Because the rest go together with man and woman and marriage and stuff, and I'm going to hit that next week. One of the things to notice is that one of them is just, frankly, righteousness versus wickedness. And that becomes the primary one as we go to the New Testament. Because if we begin to get righteousness right, we know what everything in creation is owed. And then when we begin to live in accordance with that, we'll do all these other things naturally. And so as you come into the New Testament, the image becomes the Son, the Son becomes the Son of God, and the Son of God is seeking to forgive us of our unrighteousness and bring us to His righteousness, right? But we're all drawn to this thing that's called wickedness, which is always the deformity and the confusion and the rejection of what it means to bear the image of God, to be the presence of God in God's creation for His purposes. And w wickedness is not just doing bad stuff or doing stuff God doesn't like. Wickedness is the rejection and reversal of the human purpose. What we are, what we're for. And the reason—that's the reason why wickedness is so degrading and destructive to human persons. Because every sin is not just doing stuff God doesn't like. It's doing the opposite of what we were made for. And when we do that, it has an effect on us. And not just the integrity of our bearing the image of God in the world, but on our being itself. This is why Roman Catholics and others have understood damnation as not just a judicial function, which it is, but an ontological function. It's a destruction of the self, such that the self is lost. The image of God is 
corroded and degraded and ultimately destroyed so that when a soul is damned, there is nothing left of the embodied person. There is just what is the remains of the repetitive wickedness, the devouring self that there's nothing to, right? This is what Lewis writes about in The Great Divorce, that like as souls move out into hell, they become more repetitive, more focused in their inanities and smaller and smaller and smaller and less substantial and less substantial. Never quite to nothing, but always and everywhere and more to less. Instead of more life, more aliveness, more largeness, more strength, more beauty, which is salvation. And I think it's both. Damnation is a judicial act of God, just as salvation is. God justifies sinners, and he condemns wickedness. And he offers salvation to all by faith. But he's also acting medicinally. Jesus said, I've not come to heal the well. I've come to heal the sick. What is the sickness? The sickness is the, dim- the self-infection, the self-degradation of wickedness. Rather than the recognition, look at number eight, of the dignity every human being can possess in Christ. And so as we come into the New Testament, you can be like, well, this is kind of, this is so many things, and it's a lot more than this, and it's all of their interrelations with each other. And so you're like, well, how do I possibly, like, think this through? And the answer is two things. One is God has given you stories to look to. In in some ways, we can intuitively get by imitation what we'll have a really hard time putting together conceptually. Right? So read the stories in the Bible and imitate the good characters and don't imitate the bad characters. These are all right here, right? And then secondly, what the New Testament especially calls godliness. Well, the whole Bible calls righteousness or godliness. Imitating that in any way you understand it. God says over and over again that this is what he's seeking to pursue in us. And this is what is produced by the work of God, right? What is godliness? It's making the image bearers like God, like they, he created them as they were meant to be. So when we come to Jesus, we're, we're being rehabilitated in the image, like it says in Romans 8. For God, those for God knew he also predestined to be conformed into the likeness, the image of his son. Right? Or in Colossians 3.8, it says this, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off the old self with its practice and put on the new self. That is, you've put off the old way you were living out your humanity, and you've put on a new self, a new embodied personhood, the way you're living out your humanity. It's like, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of your creator. Not your savior, not your justifier, right? You're being brought back to this creational intention. Ephesians is the same thing, right? You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted. See that idea of corruption? by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self. What's the new self? Created to be like, that is in the likeness of God, in his image, in true righteousness and holiness. You see, the purpose of redemption is to bring us to the Son so that we can be justified by faith. But the end goal is that human beings would be what they were always meant to be. People who are not just in their being corrupted in the image of God, but to have their being restored so that they can actually bear the image of God in true righteousness and holiness, like the perfect son. Which is what Jesus is, right? Some of you are familiar with the fact that Jesus is portrayed in Scripture as the perfect representation of God, because he's God, right? It says in Philip—it says in—sorry, that's the wrong one. 
It says in Hebrews, for example, the Son of God is the exact representation of God's being. That is, in the incarnation of Jesus, when Jesus becomes man, he shows every human being exactly what it's like to be God. What God is really like, what it's really like to be in the character of God, because he is the God-man. He is God incarnate, right? But one of the things that sometimes we don't recognize is that Jesus is also the opposite. He's not just the perfect representation or revelation of God to us. He's also the perfect revelation of man or humanity to us. Jesus isn't just the perfect God-man. He is the perfect man. And not man just male, but man like human. He is perfect humanity. He shows us and lives in front of us what it means to be perfect humanity. That's what it says in Philippians. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So we're not looking to Jesus here to be saved from our sin debt. We're being called here to look at Jesus to imitate him. He says, your attitude, that is your imitation of how you think about things, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So be like Jesus. Imitate him, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness. You see, in the ancient church, there were people who strayed from orthodoxy by saying, you see, it says like there. That God made Jesus like he was a human. He was never really a human. Physical bodies are bad. Spirit is pure and good. Like, Jesus was never physically a human being. That's why John says in 1 John, anybody who says Jesus didn't come truly in the flesh is not of God. He rules that out. That's not a Christian view. The reason why the Apostle Paul uses the word likeness there is not to say Jesus was kind of like a human, but not really a human. No, he's taking up this idea of image and likeness. He's saying, no, don't you see the perfect image or likeness that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 of what we were always meant to be. Jesus is the perfect likeness of that. The perfect image, the perfect idol, the perfect temple, the perfect statue, the perfect coin, the perfect son. And in being that perfection, it's not that complicated. You just have to imitate him. You have to believe in him to receive his spirit and his strength and his forgiveness to be reunited as the image bearer with the image creating God. And then you imitate him as he does all these things beautifully. And so be his presence as an embodied person in the world. You have no idea how much dignity you have. And the weight of responsibility that comes with it can be a glory to you. I know especially you who are teenagers and you're young and you're struggling with your own identity and having all this other responsibility just sounds like too much. But you'll grow up into it. And you'll find that it's everything. And you'll find that the real you that you're trying to find is already there in it if you'll receive it and believe it. God, I pray that you'd help us to embrace the doctrine of creation. And that by doing so, you'd be making sense of everything else in what you've revealed, everything you've done in redemption, everything you've shown yourself as the perfect son, everything you've done in giving us the spirit, all the work of conforming us into your likeness, bringing us into the new family of the church, creating human families and marriage, all these things that as embodied persons were a part of in creation, we pray that you'd help us to do them as in your image, bearing your image, being your presence, bringing your good dominion into the world. Help us to do it with incredible humility. Help us to do it in complete rejection of the serpent. Help us to do it 
in a way that makes you known so that what is revealed is what you say in a number of scriptures you reveal. That it's not just the other things we've said, but it's also your glory. Your beauty, goodness, greatness, all wrapped up together. As people look past us as limited embodied examples of you, as they look, learn to look past us to the one that is truly the one to be worshipped. Help us to see and savor your glory and to be such vessels that other people see it too. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.